Liberating Auschwitz, 75 years later. How many people look at their screen at least five times a day? Every hand went up, all right? How many people look at their screen 10 times a day? Almost every hand went up. I said, you're not gonna look at screens today. Today you're gonna see actual objects. You're gonna see buttons that kids wore. You see glasses and combs. There were people connected to that. So for young kids particularly who have grown up in a sort of virtual world, this is a very strong connection. It's very impactful to them. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. At around 9 a.m. on Saturday, January 27, 1945, the 100th Infantry Division of the Red Army liberated the Nazis' biggest concentration camp, Auschwitz, in southwestern Poland. Over one million Jews and tens of thousands of others were killed at this sprawling complex. The Museum of Jewish Heritage has mounted a groundbreaking memorial, bringing together more than 700 original objects and 400 photographs from around the world. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward visited the exhibit and spoke with museum president Jack Klieger. Mr. Klieger, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to speak to you. Maybe you could start with just telling us what you've got here. Well, um, we have an exhibit that contains over 700 artifacts, 400 photographs. It's the largest collection of uh, storytelling about the Auschwitz camp and what led up to the Holocaust from early in the 20th century through the rise of the Nazis, the start of the war, and then ultimately what turned into the most organized and mechanized system to kill human beings, which is represented by Auschwitz. And we decided we wanted to put the exhibit on here. It had been first shown in Madrid and it was the first time that most of these artifacts had left Poland, left the camps, and we felt it was very important, considering the times we're in, that um, people are taught the lessons of Auschwitz, the Holocaust, about man's capability of in humanity, but most importantly, what hate can do. So. Um, when we were considering bringing it over, the thing that sort of sealed it was a study that showed that most millennials, a majority of millennials in the United States, uh, couldn't identify what Auschwitz was. So we decided we would bring it here, significant undertaking, um, and obviously not a an entertaining subject, but an important, informative subject that we felt was actually in many ways more important now than ever before. So um, when we opened it in May, we didn't quite know what to expect. We did know that we wanted to, A, commemorate the six million who were annihilated, uh, B, honor the survivors and those people who resisted and, and helped rescue. So remembrance was one thing, but the most important thing was to educate. 
and inform and to fight what we see as the ignorance that leads to hate, that leads to uh, violence. So um, we've always had a strong mission of teaching children, students, particularly in middle and high school. And we, from the beginning, made a real target to get um, students to come to the exhibit. Now it's uh, eight months that we've had the exhibit up. Been very successful. We had over 150,000 people come through the exhibit. But what we're most proud about is that over 25,000 of those have been students. So uh, it's a remembrance and it's education. The program is called Beliefs, and it struck me walking through the exhibit that what people believe is so central to all aspects of the exhibit from the beliefs of a nation that ended up embracing a final solution, the beliefs of the Jews and the, the commitment to religion that survived, all the way through to the beliefs held about Holocaust denial. I think what you're talking about is really, we are not a synagogue, we're a museum, but we are very strong in the belief that we promote values, Jewish values, and that is to celebrate life most famous song in Fiddler is called L'Chaim. So people ask me, what does a museum like this that talks about the history have to do with celebrating life? And what we do is we say that we remember our history, learn lessons from the past, promise that we'll never do everything to never happen again, but we promote our values. And part of our values is that we want to teach children and everyone that there were perpetrators, victims, and bystanders. And I think Elie Wiesel said that the bystanders were the worst. But we also think there were upstanders. There were people who performed rescue and acts of, of uh, kindness and, 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 and conscience. And we make it an important point to say those. So I think our mission is to tell young kids and adults, but we don't be a bystander, be an upstander. And that's values. And that's a message of hope, but obviously we know the times we live in, and we have a responsibility, I believe, not only to six million, but to, and not only to the survivors, but to our grandchildren's grandchildren. I. I make a promise to every survivor that there will always be a place where your grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to come and know their history, learn lessons, remembrance, but also learn and hopefully teach. I remember as a kid in high school learning about the Holocaust at a time when I was not capable of truly appreciating how man's inhumanity to man could manifest in a systematic and machine-like operation. How does education survive when something is so far away and it is so enormous that it's very difficult to carry with you? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. I don't know that I have the, the great answer, but I can tell you that it, I, I believe very much um, 
there's a song in one of those musicals that you've got to be taught to hate and fear. And you can also be taught to respect and honor. And I don't know that we'll be able to teach every kid, but we want to teach children of all faiths and people of all faiths that the differences between us are also what makes us strong as long as we understand that marginalizing people is not the way to go. And I believe that in this day and age with young people, so much of what they learn and know is off a screen. It's a flat image that has a short attention span. When, I, when we had our first group of eighth graders here in our program with the Department of Education, and I said what they were about to see, our first question was, how many people look at their screen at least five times a day? Every hand went up. All right? How many people look at their screen 10 times a day? Almost every hand went. I said, you're not going to look at screens today. Today you're going to see actual objects. You're going to see buttons that kids wore. You're going to see glasses and combs. There were people connected to that. So for young kids particularly who have grown up in a sort of virtual world, this is a very strong connection. It's very impactful to them. So we think that's really what a museum is supposed to be about. So we're bridging our, our, our mission as a museum to show, explain history and f stories through artifacts and, and records to then bring that into contemporary life. Uh, so, it's so easy for kids to see all these hateful messages on you know, all sorts of media and communications platforms that it's important for them to, to also see the, what has happened, what can happen, and what shouldn't happen. And so we think the tangibility of this exhibit is a very important thing, particularly for teenagers. The bystanders that you were talking about earlier, when do we become bystanders? How do we know what's happening? How do we, how do we see the future? by looking at the past? Yeah, it's a tough one because it's very easy to be a bystander. It's very easy if, as long as it doesn't hit you to say, you know, they're not coming after me, so I'll just stay low. Um, and you learn a lot of lessons from survivors. Um, for me, it's not enough to say never again. It's, it's important to say there is hope for the future and that we can we can celebrate our differences but share our common values and treat others the way we'd hope to be treated. My thing is that if there was ever a group that could stay in despair and lose hope, it would be people who have survived what Holocaust survivors have become. And what's amazing to me is when you talk to any survivor, the fact that they could go through all of they, that they went through, and, and, and so many of them have genuine faith in humanity and in basically that human beings are, by their nature, good, not bad. If they can feel that way, then we all should be able to feel that way.
my, my parents were survivors. My mother's still alive. And she's my best teacher. Because I say to her, Mom, if after all you've been through, you can have hope and believe in man and follow your values and still believe in God, then I got to tell you, for me, it's not even a question. So that's a, I think we all can learn lessons from that. Uh, they've seen the worst of humanity, but they still can believe oftentimes in the hope for humanity. So that, that's for us an inspirational message. It's amazing when you see a 90-year-old survivor talk to a group of kids. Yesterday I had an amazing experience. We were going through the exhibit and one of our survivors, one named Branya, 92, went through an amazing story. As she was leaving, she said, you know, Jack, um, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. She said, two days ago I was up in Sandy Hook talking to the students who survived the massacre seven years ago. They were seven years old, now they're 14. And she said, I really connected with them in terms of, you know, talking about trauma and fear. And I mean, these are 14-year-old kids who have effectively PTSD, I'm sure. But she saw how her words could be helpful to them that they saw that someone can go through what she went through and still have the ability to, to help others, to hope, and to live their lives. It was, she said, we had a very good time. I said, I'm sure it was amazing. I said, we've got to figure out how to do more of that. So she was engaged, 92 years old, and she's still trying to help kids. Did your mother come to the exhibit? No, I suggested that she not. This exhibit is really not targeted for survivors, although any survivor wants to come. But my mother keeps telling me she will come. So I said, Mom, it's my recommendation, but you can, of course, do whatever you want. She'll come here in April and go through with me. What does she see when she looks around the world now? It's very, it's very difficult for her or for any survivor to look and see that they thought, you know, of any place, you know, America was where you could, you could not worry about whether you were going to be, you know, differentiated, marginalized. It's funny. You'd think that with most survivors when they see, you know, immigrants being discriminated against, hate crimes, um, families separated, you'd think they'd be despairing, you'd think they'd be hopeless, but the most common reaction I get from them is anger. Anger and a demand that this cannot stand and there needs to be something done. For that, I'm very grateful. For that, I'm glad that they feel they're in a place where they can express themselves. One of our board, Manfred Ornstein, who's a city councilman, was, is, um, a survivor. He was 12-year-old youth when the Germans were marching down his street in Nuremberg. And he came here after the first incidents and said, Jack, damn it. We couldn't say anything in Germany in the 30s, but we have a voice here 
and we should be the first to say something. So we've got to do, we're, we're not going to be just allowing this to happen. I mean, this guy has become the ultimate upstander for you know, the rights of others. So it's good that we're in a place where these survivors, these remaining people who are in their 80s and 90s finally feel they have a place where they can have a voice and they don't have to be afraid. That alone is of great value. I have one blessing that I saw on the way to meet you uh, that stood out. I wonder if you could read it for me. Ah, it's the uh, Charlotte Delbo. Um, for the, yeah, it's the uh, end when people leave. Yes, she's a survivor who wrote this in 1971. You who are passing by, I beg you, do something, learn a dance step, something to justify your existence, something that gives you the right to be dressed in your skin, in your body hair. Learn to walk and to laugh because it would be too senseless after all for so many to have died while you live doing nothing with your life. There's so much, um, so much inspirational instruction to, to seize life, but also it's an indictment of inaction. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the challenge that you have. You cannot, you know, you have to celebrate life and you have to value life. I mean, above all, value life. But um, it's very hard not to feel um, despair. But nonetheless, if this woman, Charlotte Delbo, could go through what she went through and then write imploring people to celebrate life, if they can do that, how can anybody not do the same? Jack Klieger, thank you very much for speaking with police today. It was a pleasure speaking to you, and I hope many of your listeners come here. Our guest was president of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, Jack Klieger. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, please review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.